This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, John Ronson and David Baddiel discussing conspiracies, the culture wars, and what the ongoing erosion of reasoned debate could mean for culture itself. Whether it's arguments over cancel culture, mask wearing, or perhaps what to do with certain statues, the rise of social media and the idea of endlessly raging culture wars has made public discourse a much noisier conversation. Our guest today is the acclaimed writer and podcaster, John Ronson, whose curiosity as to how all this came about led him to creating a hit radio and podcast series about it, Things Fell Apart, for BBC Radio 4, which explores the history of the culture wars. For this discussion, we invited fellow cultural luminary, the comedian and writer David Baddiel, to join John in conversation. If you do enjoy this conversation, you can check out John Ronson's tour dates, where there's still some tickets available for his live shows about the series. Now, here's our host, David Bedil with more. Hello, John. Hi, hi. We're here to talk about your podcast. And, and is it a podcast or is it a series, actually? How do you... Uh- well, actually, you know, it's kind of more a series than a podcast because we were restricted by the fact that it was going out on Radio 4. And what we were going to do, what we were going to do was just keep it all to time. So it's a, it's a, it's a challenge that you don't really have very often anymore because now you can, you can make things whatever length you like. And, but I really embraced that. I thought, okay, we've got to make this 27 minutes and 15 seconds or, or whatever. So this is an opportunity to make these show, make these stories like little dollhouses, just polish and polish and polish and make it perfect. So I, I thought the restricted time was, it was an advantage. It meant that we had to really become kind of minimalistic in, in the storytelling. So storytelling is, is that sort of what you do, isn't it? Cause storytelling that leads into, that evokes something about how we live now is sort of, I think what you do and you, you what you're taking in this one is a sort of very modern notion with which is culture wars. And we have a sense of those as sort of ongoing things that are now happening all the time around us. But your storytelling, you're adding the idea of story to them to try and find out how they began. Now, how how did that come to you as an idea? It was it was because I was watching friends kind of friends. ruin their lives. Oh, no, not friends, friends. right? <laughs> not friends. The yeah, well, the- no, no, no. I was watching friends get more and more engrossed in their particular culture war, and. I could tell that it was taking over their brains in a way that was unhealthy. They were thinking about this particular culture war all the time and were getting obsessed. And 
as a, as a consequence, people were losing their their families, people were losing their work, their reputations, people were having to move out of home. I mean, this was how serious getting getting obsessed with the culture war was around 2017, 2018. I was watching all of this happening and sort of wondering, what, you know, what's going on? I mean, we're changing. I remember at one point, Elaine, my wife said to me, it's like it's all these people that we knew, we thought we knew. It's like we don't know them anymore. It reminded me. It reminded me of the Yeats poem, uh, "Things Fall Apart, The Center Cannot Hold." It, it reminded me of that Leonard Cohen song, "The Future." Things are going to slide, slide in all directions. Won't be nothing you can measure anymore. It, it felt like it was hard. I, I thought I knew these people, these friends of mine, and yet they were behaving in a way that I could never have imagined. And and it was happening for a reason. Something was happening, and. That was the question. I always want to start with a question, a mystery that I don't know the answer to. And so that was the question. And then I thought, well, I, the last thing in the world I want to do is make a show about the culture wars that then becomes a part of the culture wars. But that's um, part of the problem, I would have thought, when you begin a, a project like this, is we should get onto exactly what the culture wars are. But now you've said that, a lot of the issues that you're dealing with here, and maybe we'll, we'll run through some of the issues you're dealing with, they are... Uh, in identity defining for other people that's what's happened it seems to me is that people the reason that people are sliding away from each other is that people are no longer being defined as a holistically if you like they're being defined entirely by their position on some of these issues that by which, which people are very angry about and are very binary about but the problem i would have thought in talking about them and i found this i did a documentary about social media and anger that went on obviously too quite recently is that can you talk about these issues without in some way feeling like you're siding with something on these issues because they tend to be so binary and indeed the people are watching and monitoring so closely that you think like they're going to pin me as like all oh, right well you're a this or you're a that because you said that how do you not side as a journalist right story and, and yeah and also sometimes you you have to side for instance one of the culture wars that i cover in the show was was uh, diversity of thought in school textbooks. That's not something that you can really both sides, I don't think, because uh, until school books got more diverse in, in the early 1970s, it was all like Dick and Jane stories about all white families where nothing bad ever happens. So there's certain things that you can't both sides, but yeah, that but that was my that was my challenge. I and it was at the forefront of my mind. I, I didn't want to do it for personal reasons. I, I hate the noise, and I didn't want to do it for storytelling reasons either. Because when you have the noise, you you lose the nuanced human story. So then I thought, well, I want to tell human stories. So the very first conversation I had with Sarah Shebia at the BBC was, okay, we'll do a series about the history of the culture wars, but they're human stories. Let's just, you know, there's there's this landscape of noise. Let's just like hone in on a tiny human story. Just a, just an unfolding story about a person who, for some reason, got caught up in this. And then that quickly became origin stories. So each story we found was about the very beginning of culture war. And what we found is just kind of extraordinary. Culture wars were starting for reasons that you would never anticipate. I think that's one of the key things. So perhaps we should just say, for anyone watching who hasn't listened to the series, what are the types of issues that you're talking about? Each episode is about a central you know, hot button topic of our times, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it is. Although that was never the, it was never like, oh my God, I've got to do something about abortion. Like, that was never our, our, you know, what we're doing is we've got to find the most, we've got to find the best stories. We've got to find the most extraordinary unfolded. Co connected to the to why I brought that up, because 
as I said a bit earlier, I think with some of these issues, probably all, maybe all of these issues to some extent, they feel like they're going on continuously all around us, even though obviously some of them are quite new. Like you talk at one point about the very kind of live cultural between trans activism and gender critical people. And that, you know, now feels like it's just ongoing, but obviously that's quite a recent thing. But to take abortion as, as, as what you do for the first one, I think it's very clever that you find a point of origin, because I think for most of us, you just think, well, obviously forever, people, since, since it's been possible to abort a baby, there have been people who have been very anti it and very pro it, but that's not actually the case. No, and it's what a story. It's, it's all because of this 19-year-old boy called Frank Schaefer, who was growing up in a commune in the Swiss Alps called Le Brie. His father was a kind of Christian Kenneth Clark. He was an art historian with a little goatee, looked like a hippie. He looks a bit like sort of Willy Wonka. And people like Eric Clapton would come to his father's commune to listen to, to Francis Schaefer talk about how Christians should respond to the Woodstock Festival festival or modern art and so on. So and his son, Frank, at the time was just dreaming of being a Hollywood director. He wanted to be like Fellini. So, so his father was offered three and a half million dollars to make a documentary series about the relationship between Christianity and art. And he got his son to direct it. And his son just wanted a showreel for Hollywood producers. So his son was putting in more and more these, these visual images, these more and more kind of startling visual images. Now he was doing it because he wanted to impress Hollywood producers. But what he decided to do, completely out of the blue, totally from left field, was convince his father to make a couple of the episodes about abortion and the evangelical Christian right had zero interest in abortion. Uh, this we're now we're talking four or five years after Roe versus Wade. So this is the mid to late seventies. The only people who really cared about Roe versus Wade were the Roman Catholics. Uh, so you had a few Roman Catholics picketing abortion clinics with their rosaries and that was it. As a result of Frank Schaefer's desire to get a showreel to show Hollywood producers, he created these visual images that were so arresting, it they persuaded unhinged people to murder abortion doctors. So the whole the whole battle, the whole radicalization of the Christian right happened as a result of this father and son, the Schaefers, making this documentary series. And then eventually the New York Post, everybody ignored the series, by the way. The mainstream media ignored the series. The mainstream media doesn't care what Christians do inside Madison Square Garden. It's like, oh, it's some Christian thing. I'll, you know. Uh, maybe Springsteen tomorrow, but it's some Christian thing. Who cares? But the New York Post ran an article about this weird avant-garde anti-abortion film that was being shown at Madison Square Garden, and uh, which was half, you know, which was like empty. And um, so Planned Parenthood started to pick it. And then the, the women of Christian evangelism were like, great, Planned Parenthood hate us. Let's, so they got involved. It's very then, important. I mean, when I was listening to the series, I thought this is a very key thing that you've pointed to here. You know, one is that these things do have origins and the origins are accidental quite often. But the other thing is that things take off and they become a war. I mean, this is always a banal point, but I think it's very important when the lines are drawn up of opposition. So it's you say at one point that this wasn't really taking off as a culture war until it became clear that there were sides to pick, until it became clear that that film uh, was being picketed by feminists. And when it was being picketed yeah. by feminists, then evangelicals mobilised to support the film against the feminists. And the reason I think that's important 
is that when I look at culture wars now, and I did talk about this when, when I did that documentary, is I think people find their identity now in opposition. That it's almost easier for someone, if they want to be, say, an anti-vaxxer or whatever, to find that identity by shouting at people who heartily approve of vaccines or whatever. Yeah. Is that the best way of proving that you are the thing that you think you are? Which is golden for the media companies because the more oppositional people are, the more money the media companies make. It's no surprise that this all started with uh, with the New York Post. It was the New York Post who got everybody angry. And Frank Schaefer wanting to have a good showreel to show Hollywood producers. I think shows, much like the New York Post getting involved, shows that our thought leaders, the people who are kind of manipulating us into behaviour, often have agendas that we don't even realise. Often they're doing it just for money-making reasons. And extrapolate that, I would say, to the people who created the internet, the libertarians, which is, which is uh, you know, we've been living inside a, a, a libertarian utopia these past 30 years when we scream at each other on the internet. This is because libertarians created the internet which which I think as, just- you say, as you say there's an outrage economy going on and this is an early example of an outrage economy whereby the new york post needs to sell advertising and it can do that by saying there's there's this thing to get angry about and anger mm-hmm. it both defines people in terms of identity but it also cr- makes the lizard mind fixate on the thing in front of them because we know that anger and outrage creates attention that the internet yes. and social media completely thrives on people either getting angry or watching anger. Yeah, yeah. And as I wrote in Sabian Public Shape, it's funny, that was all over the internet in the 80s and the 90s, you know, message boards. I remember going on, you know, boards like Mumsnet in the early 2000s, which were just, you know, everyone was just so tense and so angry. But Twitter in about 2009, 2010, weirdly, felt like an exception. It felt like the place where people weren't angry. It felt like the place where people could be unselfconscious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I would say for about, for about, my, I I joined Twitter about 2008, 2009. And actually, I think it lasted for like maybe two years of, and it was this kind of extraordinary, I'm being a bit rose tinted, but my memory of Twitter then was people would, would uh, confess shameful secrets about themselves. And other people would say, oh my God, I'm just the same. It was a place to be unselfconscious. And I think I know what happened. And in fact, I saw it happen. What happened was like The Guardian, for instance, first thought, okay, this thing Twitter, don't worry, we'll ignore it. It'll go away. And then it didn't go away. So then papers like The Guardian thought, well, we'll control it. We'll we'll run these articles called Who Are the 100 Best Tweeters? The 10 Best Tweeters in Media. And I'd see, you know, David Padil or Catelyn Moran was like one of the best tweeters. And that felt like, that felt like Eve in the Garden of Eden eating the apple. Like no longer could we be unselfconscious. Now we had to be performative because we wanted to be on the list of the best tweeters in The Guardian. So that's, I think that's how the rot began. A lot of stuff happened after that, but that's how the rot began. Twitter becoming performative. I should say I'm such a minority about this because I I felt Twitter in 2009 was a place for you to talk about what you had for breakfast. Because I just thought this is like, this is like this 
Robert Altman movie. This one of those Robert Altman movies where all these different characters' lives intersect. Some people are talking about really serious shit. There's people with mental health problems who are kind of talking about that in a, in a, in a place where they couldn't talk about that kind of stuff before. There was the beginnings of social justice stuff was happening on social media. And you just had this sort of whole, you know, mix of these different lives coming up on your screen. And I thought this is, this is wonderful. Uh, but, but, Talking about what you had for breakfast was very quickly considered not something that people wanted to happen on Twitter when everything became more performative. Yeah, I mean, in terms of that performativeness, to get back to the series for a second, you know, one of the things that obviously has happened on on Twitter, which relates to your earlier work, is the use of shaming, which is often shame being weaponized in all sorts of ways, but it's often to create a sense in which the, the people doing the shaming are somehow better than, purer than, you know, this phrase purity spiral or whatever. And it leads to what is now considered to be cancellation, which lots of people want to argue about what that is or what that isn't. But you find the first example of what you consider yeah. to be cancellation, which amazingly is for a Jewish joke, isn't it? Yeah, it's a Jewish joke. Uh, this is the very first. I, I think I can confidently say we found the very first person ever to be publicly shamed because of something they did online. And, and his name was Brad Templeton. And uh, he was a, he's had a successful life. He, he, he does a lot of work with the EFF, which is a great sort of civil rights group on the internet. Uh, anyway, he, he ran this um, site on Usenet which was like a joke a day, rec.humor.funny. His computer would, would uh, automatically each day post a joke. So, and it was probably, it was like the seventh most popular site on the internet, I think, with, you know, 20,000 subscribers or whatever. Anyway, on the anniversary of Kristallnacht, unfortunately, the, the computer spat out a joke. That was a terrible, I mean, it's a terrible joke because it takes ages for you to get it. It's so convoluted. It was a Scotsman and a Jew are having dinner. At the end of the dinner, the Scotsman is heard to say, I will pay. The next day, the headlines read, uh, Jewish ventriloquist found dead in alley. Now, you and me, who are attuned <laughs> to Jewish jokes, would kind of get that quite quickly. I got it. I I get it. A lot, yeah, but a lot of people just didn't get it. You had to like, a lot of people had to think for ages. So it wasn't a good joke for that reason, amongst any other reasons. The, obviously, the joke is Scots and Jews don't want to yeah, go yeah. I know. And then what happened to it? I mean, as far as I remember from the podcast, from the series, there's, there is quite a lot of pre-echoes or whatever the word is of what's happening now with all that discussion with sort of some people saying free speech free speech and comedy and should be allowed to do whatever you like and other people saying no it's offensive and all that kind of stuff happening and, and mm. then and then what happens i, I won't telegraph well but- yeah so yeah so this was happening at different universities because using it only really existed in universities and computer places and it got to stanford the joke ended up being being on a note stanford yeah, on well, a message board or on on the computer, yeah, and all hell broke loose because there were some people, uh, there were some people at Stanford who were like, you know, we can't allow this offensive joke to stand, and then the libertarians, the people who were kind of in charge of Stanford, as far as I can tell, the, the Peter Teals, Peter Teal was an undergraduate at Stanford at the time. Uh, tell who went on to create PayPal and yeah, and Facebook, first and early investor in Facebook, and so uh, Peter Thiel got involved with his right wing student newspaper, the Stanford Review, and 
more importantly, actually, because Peter Thiel wasn't wasn't well known at that point, uh, John, this guy called John McCarthy got involved, who was one of the creators of AI and was a very hardened, strong-willed libertarian. And he basically just used, in a sort of Paxman-like way, he just destroyed everybody and won. And the joke was allowed to flow unencumbered. And what history shows is that the decision over allowing this joke to just go everywhere on the internet without any encumbrance was the test case that the internet became. Yeah, it's a central... John McCarthy winning... Yeah, it's central to the internet because they never got the opportunity to come up with a third way. Like, is there something we can do? Is there some set of rules we could implement? They never just didn't do it. It's like, no, you don't mess with the computer. Computers do what computers can do. We don't you know, just allow a computer to flourish the way that it does. And that's that tech utopian libertarianism is the world that we've been living in. Well, it, well it is, except that what you get, obviously, is you know, lots and lots of people who feel they are offended trying to shut the joke down and then the same battle, the same culture war between those who feel that people should be allowed to say what they like and other people who feel that they really shouldn't. That's just an ongoing row. That's that's true. But I think I would argue, and I'm slightly out of my depth here, and I could be wrong about this, but the lib- I think the libertarians affect basically one. And that was just the world. No, until, I'm not saying now, I'm saying one until around 2012, 2013. And that's when people began to fight back. But but that means that for 87, 97, 2000, that for like 25, 30 years. Oh, yeah, no, I agree with that. Sorry. But now I think it's yeah. just a loop. I don't think anyone's won. Well, yes. And Peter Thiel, and actually very tellingly, Peter Thiel recently left Silicon Valley to move to Los Angeles because he said it's no longer the libertarian paradise that that it had been in the 80s. Now it's been taken over by social justice people. So there's been a very big reversal, I'd say. But that reversal is very recent. I think one of the things that I've heard you say about this series, which obviously I am very supportive of, uh, is that it's a sort of cry for nuance because you just said the thing third way and there may be a fourth way or a fifth way of dealing with many of these things, but it often feels like there's not. There's only two lines, two teams, and that those are the ones that you have to choose a side and that even, even saying, I don't want to choose a side, feels like to either side some dereliction of moral duty or whatever. And there are very straightforward examples of this because what you're talking about at some level, a lot in it I've noticed is context, is the uh, idea of context. So in one episode you show how a... Roger McGough poem, which was taught in schools in the US, was misinterpreted again by evangelicals who do feature a lot in the uh, in the first few episodes. There's quite a lot about the evangelical yeah. right. Sorry about how they used a bit of that poem to suggest that free love and free sex was being taught to children. But in fact, if they'd only read to the end of the poem, Ro- Roger McGough would have said, "No, that's not what the poem says." But they that didn't matter. The context was lost. Right. It, for, for the Christian right, for the evangelical right in the 70s, intention didn't matter anywhere as much as impact. So I think for the Christian right, intent, Roger McGough's intention, you know, that's, that's just for the privileged. Intention's just for the privileged. The only thing that really matters is the impact this poem would have on the children who might have misinterpreted the poem. Uh, because, of course, the poem, Roger McGough's a moral person. The poem, the poem was about a spontaneous orgy that breaks out on a bus at lunchtime because the world is about to end in nuclear war. Be interesting to see, actually, in the, in the coming months, whether spontaneous orgies will start to break out on buses. So, but clearly the poem, the last line 
kind of the poem is the world didn't end, but in a way it has. So very clearly, Roger McGough was saying that he wasn't in favour of spontaneous orgies breaking out on buses. But Alice Moore had no interest whatsoever in that. She was only interested in the in the impact. And of course, the irony of all of this is that the intention versus impact debate has moved from, from the from the Christian right to, to the left now. And, and today, it's much more the left who are talking about impact being more important than intention. Well, it's very complex, the impact intention thing, isn't it? Because at one level, you could say impact is more important than intent. And on another level, you could say these are people who just want to weaponize the parts of the thing that they've heard or the thing that they've read that they want to weaponize. So hmm. it, it may not be the case that the Christian right were deeply impacted by it. It may just be the case that they saw a poem being taught and thought we can use this to yeah. shut down all sorts of things that we want to shut down. Which she's, which they certainly did. I mean, they went on TV and read out that poem. And as a result, school buses were shot at and a school was blown up. I mean, bombs were planted in schools. Yeah. Incredible. However, except for the shooting and the bombs, this last year, the school, school board wars are being fought more than ever in America. And over pretty much the same thing, funnily enough. In the 70s, it was called diversity of thought in school textbooks. And today it's called critical race theory. And, and in, a, in, a, in a strange way, the same battle is being fought in, in school boards today. It's interesting because you told that joke just now, just to go back. And some, someone, I've got someone here saying that they find that joke really unpleasant. In terms of context, it's very interesting because I know you just told the joke. Now, what now? Yeah. I don't think the joke is by the standards of anti-Semitic comedy particularly offensive, but it is anti-Semitic. And someone could take you saying that joke out of context if they wanted to and just put it on the internet and say, here's John Ronson telling a terrible anti-Semitic joke. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I hope they, I hope they don't. Um, but that's something that the internet does, right? It allows for a constant yeah. cut-up culture. And yeah. a very complex thing you point to, and, and this relates to what you just said about how impact and intent has moved to the left is you talk about how i think it might be the same episode that the, the radical black activist dick gregory's memoir which is titled what we would now call the n-word but it's titled straightforward the the what that word was originally and which in 1964 dick gregory who was a radical black activist used to be a comedian incredible man you know that would have been seen as totally a cry for social and racial justice and i'm sure it that is what that book still is, objectively. Mm. And yet when it was given it's out... It's a by terrific dean, book. I'm well, sure it, I remember read it, but yeah. I, I'm mm. sure it is. But when it was given out by a dean at a college in Seattle in 2015 to an African-American student who asked, what shall I read about social and racial justice at the time? There were protests because the dean gave that book. You know, it was considered mm. offensive. And the dean was clearly as it were, on side. This is how the culture wars are so complicated. The dean must have been giving that book as an on-site thing for people who are progressive and left-wing, they got sacked. Yeah. So that, well, that's, I think that's Jane, how one context yeah. has got removed. Yeah. Well, they resigned after there being calls for her for her to be. Yeah. After I think that's kind of the same uh, thing. Yeah. And Dick, Dick Gregory got involved. He was still alive. He died in the last couple of years. But he got involved. His son got involved. They, they, everyone, obviously, on the dean's side. Um, and and it, didn't, it didn't work. This isn't to say, by the way, I think there's people in the centre who think it's ridiculous that we should think that, it, that intention is the only thing that matters. I think no, no. Yeah, which obviously you, you, it's wrong to think that. And, and the move on the left to having more consideration for impact is very, very important, uh, of course. But I think the, you know, but then things like that happen too. The, the dean being forced to resign for giving this wonderful book. I should say, by the way, that the, the 
uh, other than my episode about Tammy Faye Baker, the the messages I get more than any others, and I've had a, quite a lot of messages and people saying that they bought Dick Gregory's book on the back of on the back of that episode and really loved it. So, um, so that's something I'm very pleased about. It's a wonderful book. Yeah, he was a stand-up comedian. He was on the Tonight Show twenty three times, I think. He was on the Tonight Show, and then he gave it all up to become a civil rights activist because he just felt too guilty sitting in hotel rooms after doing a show. Just, I think just, the reason that impact becomes more important than intent to some extent is because. Because the left, but maybe everyone, everyone who's shouting is always trying to locate the, where the power is and always trying to assume that they are speaking on behalf of the powerless. And this would include both right and left, because obviously the right sometimes want to say, oh, it's the elite that are controlling us and blah, blah, blah. And so it, there's a sense in which if impact becomes more important than intent, one imagines that intent comes from the top, if you see what I mean. It's, it's the voice handing something down to you and you would just have to sit and take it. But that's not the case anymore because of the mass democratization of the internet. Yeah. And the problem that while I completely understand and appreciate being encouraged to think more about, in, uh, about impact, stuff comes with it, though, which is a problem. So I'm thinking about in my in my public shaming book, I, I, I guess the most famous story is the Justine Sacco story, the, the woman who was on the plane, just before she gets on a plane, she tweets what she thinks is a self-reflexive joke, mocking her own privilege, but it comes out you know, very badly. And while she's asleep on the plane, Twitter takes control of her life. And one of the things that was happening that night was the very, very tiny number of people who poked their heads above the parapet to say, can we not just wait until her plane lands to give her an opportunity to explain what she meant by that joke? Those people, and I watched it happen, were really attacked too. They were like, well, you're just a privileged bitch too. That's what somebody said to Helen Lewis that night. You're just a privileged bitch too. So journalists who were supposed to be fearless and to speak truth to power stayed silent that night because they were afraid that people would come after them instead. And that makes me think that curiosity that night was considered a, a weakness. Context, nuance, curiosity were all considered weaknesses because waiting, because the vibe was if you wait until the plane lands, that means you aren't enlightened enough to understand why this is a terrible thing. Yes, yes, you're giving her too much time and space and generosity. She's clearly a bad person and you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Uh, but I think that I think, notion yeah. of journalists speaking truth to power is a very complicated one when the power is the mob and not governments. Yes, well, and also because people on Twitter who were screaming at Justin Sacco that night, for instance, many different types of people. There was there was misogynists that, uh, you know, I hope somebody with HIV rapes you um, and then you'll see if your skin colour protects you from AIDS. That was one tweet I remember from that night. There was an awful lot of hipsters because the hashtag started trending worldwide. Hashtag has Justine landed yet because the comedy that night was we knew and she didn't. And people were tweeting about how they can't wait to go home and go to bed, but that they have to wait because everybody in this bar is just can't wait for Justin Sacco to land. Sorry, John, because although I want to talk about that because I really am interested in the shaming element, but it is sort of that book rather than what we should be talking about. I, I totally agree, but let me just get to the, let me very quickly get to the to the last thought though, which is that as well as those people with bad intent, there was a lot of people that night who were genuinely upset and genuinely offended, and this was an occasion when marginalised voices were getting a chance to speak, you know, for the first time on social media. And so there was something else going on that night, which was like, 
you know, if public shaming is one of the few weapons of the dispossessed, if you start attacking social public shaming as a weapon, then are you by proxy attacking the dispossessed? I want to move to an upbeat thing because as a whole, the podcast is quite a different, it's a really brilliant listen, but it's a difficult listen to some extent uh, in terms of thinking, oh my God, what's happening to the world? It does feel like things are sliding out of joint, that communication is difficult. You end with a rather plaintive but beautiful plea that people might want connection and they're really not getting it. However, there is an episode and you've already referred to it, episode three, which some people, and I think you consider to be the standout episode of the whole series, which has an unbelievably happy ending and is incredibly heartwarming. Do you want to talk about that episode. Yeah, it's a, I actually knew this. I've known this story for about three or four years and I've always wanted to tell it. And so when I started doing the show, I, I just thought, perfect, I can tell this story. It's about a televangelist named Tammy Faye Baker. Her peer group were horrendously homophobic. This was in the early 80s when AIDS was just becoming a thing. And Jerry Falwell, part of her peer group, head of the moral majority, the story goes single-handedly convinced President Reagan to not say the word AIDS for four years. Uh, hence all the silence equals death stuff that was going on at the time. And Reagan didn't say the word AIDS till, I think, 1985. But in the midst of this, you had this televangelist called Tammy Faye Baker, who had an afternoon chat show on televangelist TV called um, Tammy's House Party. And she was getting more and more alienated from her peer group. So she invited on a, a gay pastor with AIDS to, to talk about having AIDS. And so she, they found this guy, Steve Peters, who had full-blown AIDS. He was a pastor. 1985, this was. And the conversation between the two of them was just so extraordinary. It's awkward, it's funny, it's unintentionally funny, it's but ultimately it just it just grows and grows and grows and becomes exceptionally moving by the end of it. This 20-minute conversation becomes exceptionally moving, knowing for one reason, knowing that Steve was gonna die. And he was so sweet. And and Steve didn't die. He is. Yeah, you call you call the episode a, the miracle, don't you? Yeah, it's because it's a, it's a miracle on top of a miracle. The first miracle was the was the conversation between them doing so much good and healing so much of the of the rage that Christian evangelists felt towards the gay community and vice versa. And um, the second miracle is that not only is Steve still alive, but he's the most ebullient delightful, charming person I've met in years. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I mean, one of the things I think that, that really bears out your approach is 
is the humanity in all that because you know there is a culture war there going on and you know at the time it was rabid the fury of the evangelical christians towards the sense that aids was a gay plague and all that terrible stuff that, that they were saying but but what i felt listening to that is that you managed to create a, a reality not just behind him i mean he's on the pod on the series so you get i know but behind tammy Faye. You have a sense of Tammy Faye Baker, much better than, in fact, than the recent biopic about her, I have to say, as this sort of slightly lonely, slightly lost person uh, whose marriage wasn't going that well. You, d- you detail all that. And so then when you listen to the conversation, you think, ah, the loneliness of this man who's lonely because his disease has led to him to being isolated and ostracized is actually touching Tammy Faye because she feels the same thing. And that Absolutely. really bears out your very specific, very human approach. Yeah, I actually spent, I read pretty much every, well, I read every book Tammy Faye wrote and I read like, yeah, there was a, there was a big iceberg below that tip, <laughs> I'd say. I did want to do a very big project actually about Tammy, but then the movie came out and then that kind of scuppered that. Did you think about maybe finishing with that episode? Oh, I suppose you wanted to finish something that felt a bit more up to date, but in a way it leaves you feeling, you know, episode mm. three leaves you feeling more optimistic about humanity than any other episode. Yeah, and uh, I would have finished it, but we decided to kind of keep it pretty chronological and, you know, end it today. That's why we kept it when we did. What, where, what do you think is the possibility, given that what I think the internet has done and what social media particularly has done, is this thing that has always existed, I think, in humanity, which is a need to define yourself in terms of tribes, in terms of teams, in terms of lanes, and and in opposition and in anger to those who you feel are not your team or whatever. It's sort of turbocharged that. And some of that, you could say, well, it doesn't matter because it just happens on the screen. But my experience, and indeed this documentary that I did recently, suggests it doesn't say on the screen. You know, it, it tends to spill out into violence, into actual violence and into actual extremism and all the rest of it. So the obvious question is, you know, what hope is there? I think I think there's been a change in British media. You know, I left London 10 years ago when you know, Paxman was king of the news. And I, I guess a little bit earlier than that. But basically, you know, when I left Britain, British journalism was was very adversarial. A knee-jerk adversarial, adversarial when it was suitable to be adversarial, like Emily Maitlis interviewing Prince Andrew, but also adversarial when it wasn't appropriate, when a comedian was going on the Today programme to talk about his tour. So, and I have noticed a shift. I've noticed, uh, I was thinking the other day about, do you remember when Martin Lewis said there should be more good news and everybody just mocked, mocked the hell out of him? Well, I think there's been a little bit of a shift. I think people started to feel a little bit too battle weary and it's bleeding in when you listen to the today program now for instance it's it's a lot less adversarial it's more considered so i think actually a change is slowly seeping up and just and the fact that my episode the tammy Faye episode had such a response so many emails people saying that they were like sobbing they had to stop the car because they were like crying and it was too dangerous to drive shows that there's a real appetite for it we've got a insanely long way to go and when you start to see you know when you start to see ukraine you start to see the battle lines being drawn in the culture wars when it comes to ukraine your heart sinks i mean the truth about the ukraine the truth is the wrong word but i mean the the what seems to be happening in in the in ukraine to some extent is that of course it's a real war and a culture war, and it's being fought obviously with people dying it's sort of yeah the summation of, yes. of all that and of course 
you know, who knows what's about, you know, had, had, had Ukraine, had this not happened, I think I would have been feeling very optimistic and feeling that there is an appetite for change. And I'm not saying let's get sappy and, for, uh, you know, let's, let's um, not, never be adversarial again. And in fact, when you go the opposite, one of the, one of the biggest surprises about moving to America, actually, is there's very little adversarial journalism in America. But what there is instead is highly partisan curated media, where if you, if you watch CNN every day for the entire Trump presidency, as I did, you get a very curated view of the Trump presidency, where basically it's a terrible mistake. He's only an idiot. And, but don't worry. When the election comes, it'll be a landslide victory, uh, which clearly didn't happen. So, so watching all of that partisan media in America does make me miss the adversarial British media slightly more than I thought I would. Uh, but I think that is happening here too. To some, I mean, obviously we've got like like in comedy. Sorry, we've got to go to but I'm just to say the one thing, which is in comedy, I've noticed there are now these clubs and these bits which are like free speech comedy or whatever, and it's like they've created a little a little curated bubble where they can say things that if they just said them generally might get them cancelled, but they've got this sort of shield of, no, 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 this is our self-consciously fragmented, curated thing that allows us to do this. And that's a kind yeah, of well, more symptom, I think. When public shaming, and I think we must go to questions, but when public shaming becomes so ubiquitous, yeah, when public shaming becomes so ubiquitous, humans become like bugs, hospital bugs mutating into superbugs, like impervious to shame. When shame becomes overused as a weapon, what you're doing is creating, in almost in a Darwinian way, a generation of, you know, annoyingly unashamed people who think they can just get away with anything. Okay, so I have a question here from, I don't actually know their name. John, what do you think are the biggest differences between culture issues that take off and others that just fade away. So essentially, what makes a culture war? What will make something take off? Well, lately, it seems like everything is pretty much everything you can think of as becoming a culture war and takes off. I mean, I would never have expected mask wearing or vaccinations uh, to, to become such hot button culture war topics. So people to define themselves politically along those lines. I would never have anticipated that. I think generational culture wars tend to take off a lot more than ones that aren't generational. There's a lot of social science has shown that, well, two things. We behave more violently when we're serving a moral cause or when we think we're serving a moral cause. People who believe they're behaving morally behave more violently. And also, and I guess it stands to reason, but people get most upset, some social scientists say, when when they perceive that something has been taken away from them that they spent their lives building. So that's why I think generational divides factor in, because you spend your generation righting the wrongs of your parents' generation, and then a new generation comes along to right your wrongs. So that makes that makes people dizzy with rage. We've got a question here from René de Paula, who's from São Paulo in Brazil. This is quite a Brazil-centred question, but it, it is relevant. The latest democratic report by VDEM Institute points to a huge increase in toxic polarisation. And here in Brazil, polarisation is even worse, worse because organisations sponsored by Bolsonaro's regime undermine democracy and foster hate. Why are the social media platforms acting against political manipulation? Why aren't they, I guess, uh, in political manipulation in some countries? I don't know. Why are they acting against it in some countries, but in others, such as ours, Brazil, not at all? I don't know the answer to that oh, at all. I don't know if you know the answer to that, but basically why, yeah, 
There seems to be some I'm, places where they are and some places where they aren't. I don't know. I don't know anything about what's happening in Brazil. So I, anything I say would be idiotic. Uh, I, I would say that tech companies realised. I think they began as as utopians. They began as ideologues, libertarian utopian ideologues, but then realised that that would make them a lot of money because obviously people stay on longer when they're outraged. And so it became a business. I think it began as an ideology, a utopian ideology, and turned into a business model. Yeah, and also I think that the, the populists like Bolsonaro and Trump and all the rest of it, clearly they are in however conscious a way, tapping into the aggressive energy of culture war, that, they, that by siding on whichever side of the culture war they feel their base is attached to, and particularly yeah. by blasting it through the internet, then then that helps them entirely in terms of creating the, the rage that supports them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Trump was brilliant at it. Yeah, brilliant at it. Uh, Someone, I should say, I did mention this earlier, someone found, someone who's neither Scottish nor Jewish found Brad Templeton's joke to be very unpleasant. I agree with that, by the way. I'm laughing, but I agree with it. Yeah, no, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, I think this person's a bit worried that we we didn't, we don't, it's portrayed in the series as though the removal was an overreaction. I'm not that. I said in the series, like, he told me the joke and my live in the moment reaction was that, you know, I've heard a lot worse, I've heard a lot more anti-Semitic jokes than that. Personally, I just found it a kind of mad joke. I think my words were, it has all the, it has the combination of words that approximate a joke, I think was what I said when I first heard it. Personally speaking, I wasn't offended, but then I immediately said, but of course I can't speak for all Jews, which of course I can't. I can. I, I, <laughs> John uh, says, Marie from Brian, I worry about the impact on children of seeing all this fighting on the internet all day. Uh, is there something you have any insight on? Actually, yeah, I've got something positive to say about that. I've, I tend to, when I'm having meetings with people or social things where they've got like 12-year-old kids, I, I've started asking people the same question, which is, okay, your 12-year-old kids, how do they feel about all the fighting on the internet about everybody feeling like they're Princess Diana in a minefield and if they put a step wrong, they're going to just blow up. Um, and the vibe I get is that the younger siblings, the kids of like 12, 13, are a little bit sick of it, a little bit sick of having to live under a set of rules imposed by their older their older siblings. And the vibe I get is that when they become of age and they start to dictate the atmosphere on social media, maybe things will loosen up a little bit. And loosen up, and I'm only saying loosen up in terms of the disproportionate punishment of people who have committed small transgressions. I'm not saying loosen up in terms of everybody's just going to become offensive again. Yeah. I mean, to be optimistic about that i think there is a possibility that it has already embedded itself as a thing in young people and that as a lot of young people are very self-conscious and very worried about saying anything in public because they've grown up Mm -hmm. under the cosh of knowing they can be really really shat on for saying anything at all and i think that i mean i i see in my children and my children's friends a certain timidity about speaking out about anything i would say as a result um, yeah. So, Kerry, I'm just going to have to move on. So, I do want to get these questions in. Jamie in Birmingham says, "Do you think the fact that journalists are all on Twitter and it's so important to their job means that we actually think of culture wars as more pervasive in society than they actually are, 
uh, Twitter, you know, viewed as essentially is Twitter disproportionately important. And so we all think people are more angry than they are. Well, I, I, I think the relationship between journalists and Twitter is often the nerdy kid sucking up to the school bully because they can get something out of it and also don't want to be hurt. I find journalists to, to, to be more often more spineless on Twitter than I would have I would have anticipated uh, when it comes to seeing something unfair happening and not wanting to speak out about it. Yeah, at first journalists thought that we thought we could control Twitter by having those listicles, but we pretty quickly realized that no, we can't. We just have to we just have to comply. I think I think uh, what the person might also be saying is, are we over it? Yeah, is this a disproportionate thing? Well, I think the, the fact that so many journalists are on Twitter and then write about what's happening on Twitter in the paper is not only shitty journalism, but yeah, it is spreading an anger. But we did, you know, we had a Twitter president and he was like human Twitter. And so one of the very first talks I did when Say You've Been Publicly Shamed came out, this woman in the Q&A said, well, if you play with the Twitter toy, it's your fault if you get hurt. And her implication was that it's a bubble that doesn't have any impact. And, and around that time, people would say all the time, the internet isn't the real world. Uh, the fact is, I don't think anybody feels that anymore. No, I, I, I think yeah. the notion of what the real world is and what the real world is is a complex one. But I also think you have to think about impact and intent again, which is when, I, when my social media documentary came out, Hugo Rifkin, who is a journalist, a very good journalist, but said this thing about how talking about anger on the internet, he, he thinks a lot of people, when they say horrible things, they're not that angry. They're just sort of doing it out of sort of almost habit. Now, the internet fosters a sort of lazy habit of anger. But the impact of horrible yeah. stuff is still really horrible, whether or oh, not the people God. doing it are hardly bothered, whether or not, you know, these people are, are, are just saying it because that's now the thing to do. Yeah. You know, after, after my show, The Last Days of August came out, which was about a porn star who took her life. It's um, great, great podcast. Thank you. And, and the day she took her life, there'd been an internet pylon she'd been piled in on on the internet. So the, the the everybody just assumed that it was the pylon that caused her to to take her life. And I discovered a bunch of other things that were happening in her life, which clearly contributed as well. But I did know when the documentary came out, this guy interviewed me. This Canadian guy. And he said, well, now that you've um, shown that August Ames died, not, you know, because of all this other stuff that was happening in her life, do you want to take back everything that you said? And so you've been publicly shamed. Like, have you changed your mind about And I'm like, no. And and it's terrible. And And what I said to him was when somebody is behaving poorly on social media, when somebody tells a joke that comes out badly or says something that could get them into trouble... Often, there's a lot of shit going on in that person's life, and that's why they're spiraling. And that's why. So, you know, rather than, you know, this guy was saying, like, my point is, is that when we tear somebody to shreds on social media, often there's a lot of other shit going on in that person's life. The next question from Kyle, we haven't got much longer, but the Kyle is about the same kind of thing, which is how do we make people more human online uh, either us uh, kyle asks against banning anonymous accounts on social media uh, i am not particularly because actually i don't think anonymity is a big no. issue really i think if there are no. lots of people uh, whose identity is totally uh, in plain sight who i've seen be really horrible so i'm yes. not sure 
it really matters. That I, I, I agree with you about that. I, I think curiosity, patience is good. Twitter is the world's worst information swapping service. And very frequently, two days after we've told someone to shreds, we've discovered that the information was wrong. I could give you a countless examples of that. And the person hadn't done the thing that we thought they did. So if I could set one rule for Twitter, I'd say don't... if. Wait two days before piling in on someone because very frequently you'll find other information that makes it more nuanced. Someone asked an interesting question about the medium. You know, you've made films and different types of audio and written books. Do you think the six or eight part series is the best form in which to tell a a story? I I still think the non, I still think a nonfiction book is the best way of doing it. And I think a six or eight part podcast series is the second best way of doing it. Uh, the the reason why I I've got an I think I have an overly high standard about book writing. I th- I think that I can't bear the idea of of not of writing not a good book and then going on stage and trying to be enthusiastic about a book that you don't think is the greatest book that you've ever written. And that's why often many years go by between my books. I have a I have an unrealistically high standard. I, I think. So when I had, it's when kind I of old-fashioned idea, an old-fashioned, uh, which I would probably agree with at some level of, of sort of yeah. you know books being some kind of particularly noble Important. art. Form. I know it's funny because it is it is an old-fashioned idea, but but as a consequence, it's, it's, if I've got an idea which I really love, but I'm not sure it would work as a book. Thank God the the pod, the, the, non, the six or eight part podcast exists, and it's still the wild west of narrative storytelling, of nonfiction storytelling. I'd love the fact that you can really do, you can do whatever you want in terms of narrative, as long as it works, as long as it keeps people listening. There's, there's no in movies. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of structural rules in podcasting. There's none. Uh, this will be the last question, I think. Uh, it's from an A-level student, Olivia, in London. To what extent do you believe that social media can be a force of positive change as well as a platform of social erosion? Oh, like massively. Like we've lived through a time of seismic positive change these last few years. So uh, absolutely. I think there was a little bit of confusion when, when the book first came out. I remember I was I was on with Naomi Klein. I, me and Naomi Klein did something together in Australia. And I think the sort of vibe was that she would be the person who would write about social media shaming as being a force for good. You know, these were the days before Me Too and Black Lives Matter. But you know, that was the kind of thing that, that, that was brewing. And I would be the person who would constantly be like naysaying about public shaming. But of course, I don't think that. I mean, there's a huge, vast amount of good comes from social media and continues to do. I mean, society has changed unutterably uh, since the advent of social media and in many very positive ways. I think I think it's it's about the same. I think it's about the same. I think it's created about as much good as it's created bad is what I think. Um, yeah, I, and, but, yeah, extreme good and extreme bad. Yeah, yeah. And I think it also, the other thing I think is that it's sort of amazing how many people slightly older than me, and I'm quite old, but also maybe my generation and may, and also kind of journalists or whatever, but there still are people who sort of think, it, as you said earlier, it's not the real world. Uh, sort of like it, it's something over there. I mean, like in my book, Jews Don't Count, to mention it, I, there's quite a lot of Twitter examples. And I have read rev- some reviews of, of that, which suggest that there's too many Twitter examples. Because, and they would never say that about, well, there's too many examples from books or too many examples from, the, you know, journalistic stories. But to be honest, that is a misunderstanding of the world in which we live, where this medium, not just Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, just that is the world in which people swim. Yeah. And going back to that earlier question, a lot of it is a lot of it's the fault of the tech 
gurus who created the platforms, but also a lot of it is the fault of the journalists who then just thought, oh, you know, we can we can feed off of this, we can feed off of this and write some easy stories. So yeah, the journalists are very much to blame too. Uh, you have answered the last question we've had, which is, do you think the culture wars will ever end or is it something that will always exist? Uh, you sort of answered it earlier where you thought that things were improving maybe until the Ukraine conflict. Is there anything else you have to add to, since someone has asked that question? Well, I, I mean, I don't think we're ever going to like see, see an end to it. But what I really hope, but I think people have matured. There's a line in So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which came out in 2015, where I said we're like on Twitter, we're like toddlers crawling towards a gun. And I don't think we're toddlers crawling towards a gun anymore. I think we're maybe adolescents or teenagers holding, maybe holding a gun. When there's an, when there's an, an ambiguous or unfair shaming, there's much more of a democratic back and forward. There's many more voices. And that didn't happen the night of Justin Sacco, for instance. It was 100,000 people screaming at one person who was oblivious because she was asleep on a plane. And that was hilarious to people. That doesn't happen. So I think I, I think there has been, there's, there's a maturity on social media. And hopefully we will con- continue to mature. Okay, well, that's brilliant. I think we have reached seven o'clock so that in britain so so that is the end of uh this chat i've really enjoyed it i would recommend anyone who hasn't uh listened to john's podcast things fell fell apart i often say things fall apart but it's things fell apart isn't it yeah the in in the yates poem it's things fall apart but because it was a history show i put it in the past tense okay good things fell apart it's still available obviously on bbc sounds where you can go go and listen to all eight okay that sounds brilliant all right well thanks a lot john uh, well done on an amazing series and thank you everybody uh, at intelligence squared for watching i'm david Bedil, and i'll see you again next time 